Uh, today we're going to continue our series in the Gospel of John, and uh, though uh, originally I was tasked with verses uh, 35 to 42, uh, Willie has uh, permitted me to take it back a wee bit further, um, so that's why we've got last week's text and this week's text uh, in a one <clears throat> Last week, Willie took you through the, the meaning of that wondrous declaration, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And uh, let's be honest, when you, when you hear a declaration like that, it's no surprise you don't go any further. <laughs> I mean, it is of such central importance to everything that we are uh, that it really does deserve some time spent on it. Uh, however, it does give me a little bit more scope this morning. <clears throat> so I want to consider the significance of the baptism of Jesus, the words of John the Baptist about Jesus, and the actions of Andrew who were pointing to Jesus. Uh, in our slightly longer passage. Now, when it comes to the baptism of Jesus, you may have been, uh, well, you may be forgiven for having overlooked that John mentions that. Uh, It's in uh, uh, verse 32. Let me just read that out. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. Uh, When we read this, we are to be reminded of when that took place. And that, of course, was at the baptism of Jesus. So just to be thorough, what I'm going to do is I'm also going to read then from Matthew uh, chapter 3, verses 13 to 17, which records that event which John is nodding to in that verse. So Matthew chapter 3. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan, to John, to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Amen. Now, there is something beautiful about the way that Jesus identifies with the crowd, uh, taking his turn at the hand of John the Baptist. And yet, as John makes clear, if this was an ordinary baptism, really their roles should have been reversed. And so it is really interesting that Jesus responds with this curious phrase, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. That's his reason for why he gets baptized. Uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record the baptism in detail. Uh, Luke, he records it in sort of a chronological history. Uh, Mark briefly notes it because that's the moment where the, the ministry of John really gives way to the ministry of Christ. Matthew, however, is writing uh, with a slightly different uh, audience in mind. He's writing to the, the Jewish readers, really. And so when he is writing, he is trying to promote something. He's trying to, to, to show what this is really all about. You see, Jesus is taking on a role at this point, a role which the Jews would have recognized as being incredibly important. At the moment of baptism, Jesus is taking on the role of the high priest. You see, at the beginning of the ministry, the high priest would have been washed from head to foot by the hand of another. Um, we, we see the first example in uh, Leviticus 8, where Aaron 
uh, gets washed by Moses. And immediately after that, they're supposed to be removed from the people for a set amount of time before them and God. They're supposed to be away from all the people. And of course, Matthew, he writes down Jesus, he gets baptized, and then he goes into the wilderness. We're supposed to kind of see the, 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 the reasons behind it all. Jesus is assuming the mantle of high priest. That's why he t- turns to John and says, no, this is something that needs to be done. <laughs> this is the beginning of me taking on this role. Now, it's not just me that thinks this. That's why uh, the book of Hebrews uh, makes this connection. Um, for example, uh, the, the book of Hebrews uh, talks about Jesus, the great high priest, in, in chapter 5, verse 5. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And so we're linking again that moment of the baptism when the voice from heaven says, this is my son. Uh, We're linking it all together, that baptism, the high priest. You see, it kind of all comes together in one. Uh, Jesus as high priest is a central theme throughout the book of Hebrews. I mean, it's mentioned in chapter 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 13. So it's a fairly central theme throughout the book. Uh, And that's what lies behind the baptism of Jesus. When we ask ourselves, why was Jesus baptized? Uh, First and foremost, it's because he is taking on a role. A role that required for him to be baptized at the beginning of that ministry. But the question remains, I suppose, well, why is that important? I mean, there'd been many high priests up until this point. I mean, from Aaron, generation after generation after generation, there had been high priests. Why is it important that Jesus takes on this role? And that's why our readings this morning are so important. You see, John, uh, he's so busy trying to talk about Jesus Christ, that yes, he gives a nod to this whole high priest thing, but he really expounds why Jesus, as the high priest, makes all the difference. And so we have through John the Baptist, the testimony of John the Baptist, three key things. Jesus is the Lamb of God, Jesus is the Son of God, and he is the one that baptizes in the Spirit. And that is why it makes a difference. In verse 29 and in verse 36, John the Baptist declares that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God, a reference, of course, to that sacrificial offering that saw people who were excluded and out with the presence of God brought near in a right relationship, back into his presence. As such, when we hear that phrase, the Lamb of God, we are to be reminded of the numerous times where a lamb has stood in the stead, where people have death looming over them, and yet the blood of the Lamb Save them. We think uh, of the Passover, the Passover lamb whose blood was shed to save lives. Uh, We think of the Levitical offerings where the guilt and the consequences of sin, the exclusion from the presence of God were dealt with through the blood of a lamb. Uh, We're reminded of the promise in Isaiah and Jeremiah that one would come who would act as the ultimate lamb of God, bringing the people back into right relationship with him. John the Baptist also describes Jesus as the Son of God in verse 34. Now, this is a description that can sometimes be misunderstood. From the opening of this chapter, in John chapter 1, we see that Jesus Christ is God. He's not being created by God. He's not some sort of offspring of God, which is where sometimes our minds will go. 
for the for the Greeks, it wasn't quite like that. Uh, even for the Hebrew people, it wasn't quite like that. Uh, more, they're trying to give over the idea that, that he is the very image of God. Um, our children <clears throat> are said to be born in our image. Uh, ever since uh, Genesis chapter 5, when Seth is born, we have this idea that our children can be born, as it were, in the image of the Father in particular. Um, uh, that's no less true in, in my family. There's many times I am exasperated with my children, and I know I only have myself to blame. Uh, but it is more than that. Uh, the reason that I am ultimately to blame for my children is not just because I'm trying to raise them, but that they are made of the same stuff. They have my DNA. They, they are very much a part of me. I can see myself in them. But when it comes to Jesus Christ, that's the kind of the idea that we're trying to get, uh, but to a greater degree. In John 14, verse 9, Jesus says, Do you not believe that I am in the Father? Now, whoever has seen the Father, uh, whoever has seen me, has seen me. Uh, There's this wonderful sense by which Jesus is trying to say, look, if you wish to see the Father, you've seen him, you've seen me. We're the same. And that's the idea when we have this idea of God the Son. It's this idea of this perfect image of God walking around as a human being. It's amazing. John the Baptist also declares in verse 33 of our passage uh, that Jesus baptizes in the Spirit. Now, now, please remember that the gospel message is not simply that you get moved from one column to another in some sort of heavenly accounting exercise. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's not just that you get moved from unsaved to saved. The power of the gospel means that God dwells inside of us. It means that the same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead dwells in each and every one of us, which means there's a wonderful hope for each and every one of us, not just a distant hope when we see God face to face, but there is hope now. There's a hope that we can be changed and molded to be more like him. With a wonderful hope, because we can participate with him in the lives that we lead. It's a wonderful hope, because God dwells inside of us. So when we think of Jesus as a high priest, it is in light of him being the Lamb, the Son of God, and the Spirit baptizer. Only then do we see why it matters. You see, the high priest was to stand between God and man. He was a mediator. He was the one that would go first. He would make sure that sin was dealt with so that God and man could meet. So when Jesus, the Lamb of God, takes on that role, we know that our forgiveness is assured. The consequences of sin, instead of being poured out on our heads, was poured out in full onto his. When Jesus, the Son of God, takes on the role of the priest, well, it means that the access to God, into the very presence of God, is opened and can never be closed. It means because he is the Son of God, he is the only one that had the right to take that temple curtain and rip it in two. That curtain that said, you are not allowed into the presence of God. Well, as God, he was the one that was able to rip that in half and says, come on in. As the one baptizing with the Spirit, we have that wonderful and genuine expectation that we could be changed and that we can participate with God 
day by day. That's why it matters. <laughs> Jesus, the high priest, matters. It matters because one day I will stand before the throne of God. And, and whilst we don't know what that is going to be like, we are prone to trying to imagine. <laughs> I may have shared this before with you, but the way that I imagine it is, is that um, I stand before the throne of God. You know, I'm, I'm standing there. I know me. And the book is brought in. My name on the front. Everything I've ever done written in that book. And I can't pretend I'm innocent. I can't pretend that I'm not guilty of all the things inside that book. And that's just book one, volume one. There's a mighty mountain of books outside waiting for me. Lurking outside. And there is no defense. I cannot claim innocence. I cannot claim mistaken identity. I'm guilty. Every line would condemn me. And just as that reproachful, baleful book is about to be opened, there echoes through heaven a voice which says, He is one of mine. Take those books away. And those books are gone. They're added to his account. Jesus, the high priest, is my mediator, and he takes them all away. And in that moment, Jesus, the high priest, really matters. It really matters. And he mediates for me even now. He makes it possible for me to know God. He makes it possible to be in his presence even now. And he makes it possible that the leopard could well change his spots, that we could change. And so believe me, it matters. Uh, whenever you are asked, why was Jesus baptized? Well, it is a sign of him taking on a role of high priest. It is a start of a ministry, a work which he is doing even now in amongst us, to us, with us. And will finish one day when he presents us all blameless, without spot or blemish in the throne room of heaven. That is why words like hallelujah exist. So that's the baptism. That's the words of John. But it has an effect, these things. I keep trying to, to, to emphasize it's not just enough that we have something to look forward to in the future. It should change us now. There should be a consequence now. And we see that actually in what Andrew does. Um, Andrew uh, is remarkable because it's not enough to simply see Jesus as a high priest and appreciate what he has done. Just like John the Baptist had that instinct to point to Jesus and step back, Andrew too does this very thing. Having met Jesus, he can't keep him to himself. You know, there are a number of conversations where I will become quite animate and get quite engaged in, to be fair. Uh, just to give you a fair warning, the Rugby World Cup is on at the moment. If any of you engage me in conversation with that, I hope you've set a free hour aside. But it is a different level when I'm talking about something which matters, which really matters. When I talk about my children, uh, when I talk about my wife, that there is a different level to that conversation. 
Uh, when I talk about my wife, you should, should expect me to be filled with enthusiasm and disbelief and wonder that this wonderful human being is my not-quite-opposite-one. And the phrase not-quite-opposite-one, I'm afraid it's not my own. Uh, it comes from Genesis 2, ver- uh, Genesis 2, verse 18. It's God's description of what the, the wife is from the perspective of the man. My not-quite-opposite-one. I, I, I love that. Uh, I think in English we say um, uh, she'll be uh, uh, meat for him, or she should be a, a fit helper. Or, uh, it's saying... She is the other half of this one thing, the, the, the completing element. It, it, it's a really beautiful phrase, the not-quite-opposite one. I think that's the best description of, of a wife I can ever imagine. I think it's brilliant. And that's how God describes it. Now, that's why later on, when um, it, it says that the man and the woman will, 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 will become one, um, we very often think, oh, well, yep, that's them one, that's all done and dusted. In, in Hebrew, it's slightly different. It, it says, they will forever be becoming one. I love that. I, I realize that we live in a, a very broken world, and, and each and every one of us is affected by it in different ways and acted out in different ways. And I realize that not every single one of us will experience this not quite opposite one and this forever becoming one. But as the ideal of what it should be, I think that's beautiful. Uh, I've been married for 21 years, very patient wife. And I have to say that now we're more one than we were on day one. And the reason for that is that there have been many struggles many problems, many things that we have encountered that have allowed that opportunity. Because we choose. We choose either to be pushed apart or pushed together. And so through all of that, you begin to intertwine so that you cannot imagine life without the other. So can you appreciate how talking about her is a whole other level from, say, rugby? Well... If that is how I'm going to talk about my wife, how am I going to talk about Jesus Christ? Having seen Jesus, having met Jesus, having been saved by him, having been brought to life by him, having been raised up and changed by him, how could he mean any less? (laughs) How could anything else that I have to talk about compare to Jesus Christ? Every shared moment and again, every struggle, every difficulty that we have encountered together has pushed us together because again, every single problem that comes either pushes us away or pushes us together. We choose. Daily. Some days we choose, right? (laughs) Some days we don't. Like every relationship. But how could I be silenced? How could I imagine suppressing the good news? How can I be quiet when there is a world in desperate need? How can I be silent when I know there are those without the mediator? When it comes to Andrew, we see him being directed to Jesus by John. And once he sees him, once he meets him, Andrew spends his life pointing people to Jesus Christ. He starts off with his brother, Peter. But later on, he's the one that brings the boy with the loaves and the fishes to Jesus uh, for the feeding of the thousands. Uh, Later on, uh, in uh, John 12, he he brings a whole group of Greeks to Jesus because they're desperately inquiring. There is a pattern here. Having met Jesus, he is compelled to tell others, and he starts with his brother. 
Actually, I think that might have been the hardest one in some ways. <laughs> I don't know about you. But sometimes it's really difficult to tell the ones we love. To raise that conversation about the stark reality of the state that we're in and the desperate need of a redeemer. I, I have a whole collection of uh, fears and things when I, when I think about uh, you know, what I do and, and, and what we're a part of. Um, uh, most of them are, are, are unfounded, but uh, let, let, me, let me explain one. I have this notion in my head, and this is not a theological concept or a doctrine or a scripture. This is Ian Hepburn's strange recess of his mind. I have this strange concept that when we are going to heaven, there's a queue. That's why I warned you before I started. It's a very British way of looking at it, I think. It's an orderly queue. (laughs) But this queue haunts me because I imagine there's two queues. It's the one I'm in. You know, we've got our mediator. (laughs) Everything's okay. Everything is wondrous. Because I know where I'm going. And I'm excited. But what terrifies me and what haunts me is the idea of another queue. What really haunts me the most is that there are people in that queue that I know and that I love. What haunts me the most is the idea that they could look over and say, you knew that this was going to happen. You knew all about this and you didn't tell me. Actually, do you know what? (laughs) It's worse than that. It's worse than that. They could actually say, you know what, most of the time you didn't even pray for me. You know, we need to be like Andrew. We need to point to Jesus Christ. And yet I know, I know sometimes it is so difficult. We we find ways to talk about anything else before it really matters. I know. I'm not pointing the finger at anybody in this room. But we can pray. Uh, of that there, there is no excuse. We, we need to be a people who pray. See, the wonderful thing about prayer is not just that you pray and you hope oh, maybe God will do something and I don't have to ever raise the subject. <laughs> it is a wonderful thing, prayer, because when you're talking with God, it's not just that you give him a list of requests, you're talking with God, and God is intent on a two-way thing, and he will change you. The wonderful thing about prayer is that when you're praying for someone, like really, really, really praying for them, you care for them. You, you develop a, a real concern for them. And it may well be that through praying and praying and praying that God gives you something. It is often the case that when we find ourselves spending time with God that we find that we are being changed. And the wonderful thing is that as we're busy praying to God over somebody that we love, it could well be that we are changed so that the people that we are and then the things that we say are a powerful witness. Uh, we need to be a people of prayer. Um, uh, so actually, to start, I should say, uh, at this moment, particularly at this moment, uh, I'm going to have a, a plea with you that you would pray for me. <laughs> uh, pray for my family. Uh, do not imagine for a second that the devil will be happy to sit back while we give glory to God. We need to be a people that pray. The people that pray are people who care. Um, at least eventually. And when you care, things are different. 
we can be changed. We can be, through prayer, this undeniable proof that the gospel is real. And so when it comes to it, and when we're having to explain to somebody that you believe in Jesus Christ, and they can look at you and say, well, how can I know? Well, you can say, well, look at me. <laughs> this is the evidence. Well, I'd uh, better come up with a conclusion now. You know, if we were to take this seriously, take Jesus the high priest seriously, it would affect us. And then it would affect those around us. Just like John points to Jesus, and then Andrew points to Jesus, there's this wonderful kind of ripple effect going on, right? like, like some sort of Christian dominoes going out. This ripple of witness of people who have met Jesus who cannot be unchanged once that has happened. And so when we do talk to people, when we bring people here, it is not enough to point out that this is a nice place uh, with nice people. It's God we need to point to. I love the fact that when we're thinking, and hopefully some of you are thinking of some of your, the people you think, well, maybe I should pray for them. The wonderful thing I have to say is that I'm not saying go out in your own strength. I'm not saying go out there and Think of a, of a really clever way of putting things. I'm not asking you to be uh, loquacious. I'm not asking you to be eloquent. I'm asking you to point to Jesus Christ. It's him. It's him. Because we are ordinary people. I hope that's the most insulting thing I ever say to you. But we are ordinary people in the hands of an extraordinary God. And so if you are sitting there thinking, well, I can't, that's probably true. And that's why we need to go and we need to pray because we know that he can. This extraordinary God who demonstrates how strong he is because of how weak we are. But we are to be a people who speak, a people who pray, and a people who out of love point to this great high priest. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we come before you, we are conscious that we are very often unable to speak when we should, unable to give that good witness that we should. But we thank you, Lord, that in our weakness, your strength is made clear. We thank you, Lord, that there is hope because... You would dwell within us and amongst us. And so, Lord, I pray that you would enable us, that you would encourage us, that you would strengthen us, that you would help us to pray for each other, that you would help us to pray for those we know we need to pray for. And in doing that, Lord, I pray that you would help our hearts grow. As we pray, Lord, as we encounter you, I pray that we would be changed. As we pray, as we plead with you, I pray Lord, that we would be a people whose hearts beat the way that you would have them beat. Lord, we look to you to change us, to mold us day by day. And all of it, Lord, for your glory. In Jesus' wonderful name. Amen.